The scripture this morning is from Second Timothy, it's chapter three, verse sixteen, to chapter five, to chapter four, verse five. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Um, I have the great privilege and pleasure this morning of inviting a guest preacher. Norm Funk is with us. Um, yeah, Amen. <laughs> you guys are. Yeah. I've never been applauded before. I've preached before. So if, if I came back a second time, that may be a, He'll be a back lot a less second time. than the golf clap. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, let me just introduce Norm a little bit. Uh, probably nobody knows this, but Norm and I actually went to high school together. So yeah. like 35 years. Yeah. Um, and uh, Norm has done... Uh, an awful lot to advance the mission of Jesus Christ in the city of Vancouver. Uh, 13 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. You guys planted uh, Westside here in this room. Yeah. So are you getting a little teary? No, I am. It's very nostalgic (laughs) for me. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And uh, Norm now is a pastor of Westside. They meet downtown across from the library. And you guys have planted four churches. We have. And they planted Christ City, South Van. Which planted us. And yeah. here we are. Hey? Yeah, full circle. So the, the fingerprints of God all over this. Um, we're very excited. We were praying a lot for you this past couple of weeks as we prepared our own hearts through the Easter season. And I just quietly prayed uh, to the Lord that you would preach on preaching the word. And this is the text that he chose. So wow. God has already gone ahead oh, of that's us. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Bring the word, brother. Thank you. Thanks, Fred. Yeah, um, it, I am. It is. I am very nostalgic being uh, here with you today. Uh, lots of memories. The the place is nicer. They've done a refurbishing and all of that. So it's a lot nicer than I remember it. But it's so good to be with you. So I have so many memories of this room and walking in here the first time and now being back and and looking back at that time, again, just so many memories. I, I was thinking, one of the ones that stood out, I didn't come here prepared to share it, but I remember preaching in here one time, probably five or ten minutes into a message, and the fire, fire alarm went off. I don't know if that's happened yet. And so, uh, and then about five minutes later, firemen showed up and just said, all right, you're done. And that was it for Sunday. So I still remember thinking, I think we just shut this bad boy down. I can't imagine anybody showing up again. So I, I hope that doesn't happen again. Uh, I bring greetings on behalf of Westside to you. I bring Uh, Greetings on behalf of my wife who can't be here today. She's up in Kelowna with my other son. My one son is here. My other son is up there at a volleyball tournament. And and she would have loved to have been here. She sent me a text this morning going, 
uh, you know, I hope it's a great, a great morning going back, uh, going back to Fifth Avenue, and it is. It's great to be here. Fred's a good friend. I love Brett. Brett is a, a brother in ministry, and so uh, when this opportunity was given, it was an easy, easy yes. I'd do whatever I could to be with you. So uh, with, that, with that sort of out of the way, I want to I turn to the scriptures that were read uh, already this morning, coming from 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, As you find that, if you haven't already, let let me pray once again uh, and ask that the Lord lead us uh, over these next minutes together. And so, Father, that's that's my ask. I ask that by way of your spirit, through the word that has been given to us, that you would speak to us today. Uh, I don't know um, everyone in this room. Some I know a little bit, some more than others. But I do know for sure that we need to hear from you. And... um, Father, in that need, we have an enemy that doesn't want us to hear. And so I pray against the enemy that loves to, to take seeds that are planted and, and snatch them away. So I pray against that. I pray instead that we would be soil that is good and receptive. So that as we respond to your word today, we would go to places or leave places that we need to leave or go to. And I pray for all of these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen. So just give you some context of the text that was read. Uh, it's a text, 2 Timothy, that was written by a man named Paul. I think many of us are familiar with Paul. But Paul, what you need to know about the, the goings-on of 2 Timothy 3 and 4 is that his ministry and his life is ending. Uh, most people agree that this is perhaps the last letter that Paul has ever written or does write. He's writing it like he does many of his letters from prison, but he is writing to a a partner in ministry, a younger, much beloved partner in ministry, a a, a man named Timothy. And what Timothy is doing as we drop into chapter 3 and 4, as we drop, in fact, into 1st and 2nd Timothy, he's pastoring a church in a city called Ephesus. Uh, the, The church that's in this city that he is pastoring was planted by Paul but has since been left to Timothy to pastor. And it hasn't necessarily been an easy endeavor for Timothy. Uh, If you read through both 1st and 2nd Timothy, there are charges to Timothy to stay there, remain there, do what what God has called him to do there, to to not run, to not be intimidated, to to continue on in in this journey that you're on. And so as we get to this chapter, as I said, Paul's life is ending. Uh, Timothy is getting the last words from Paul, which leads to our text. Just to give you one example before we look at it specifically of the relationship between Paul and Timothy, it perhaps is best wrapped up in a letter that he writes, Paul writes to the Philippian church, where in chapter 2 he writes of Timothy, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. It's quite the statement. I mean, Paul had worked with some pretty amazing individuals, men and women across the age and day, but of Timothy he says, when I look at him, I have no one like him. So, so there's much love. There's, there's this great history and all of that. And so Paul is writing to this individual. He has this, this individual in mind. And the motive behind this letter to Timothy is really to give him some final thoughts. Just to share, give him some last tasks or last bits of information or last charges to him as he hands things off and move, moves ahead quite literally to glory. What would you write? 
What would you write if you're coming down to the last days of your life and you've been doing ministry with individuals, especially one that you love to death? What would you write? Uh, It's an important question because of all the things that Paul could have addressed. The one that he takes time to to give to Timothy at this stage is the charge to preach the word. That's what he ends things off with. That that exhortation or charge or instruction, whatever word you want to use for it, as you see in the first part of verse 2 of chapter 4, the text that we've read and looked at, um, it hangs on that charge. It's sort of the fulcrum point of our text. That instruction seen in verse 2 is what this text hangs on. Now, I'll prove that to you as we go ahead, but just take my word for it now that everything that leads up to the charge in verse 2 and everything that goes thereafter hangs on it. So the, the question is why? Why this why this, Paul, as you're coming to the end of your life? Why do you, why do you, why do you, why do you affirm this? Uh, why do you spend time here? Well, he gives us two reasons, two reasons that will guide our time together this morning. Let me give them to you on the front end if you like taking notes, and then I'll double back and look at them one at a time with you. But here's why he does it. It's because of what the word is. That's number one. And it's because of what the word does. That's number two. So let's take them one at a time by first looking at what the word is. And I'll have you look back at verse 16 of chapter 3 because we get the description of what the word is there. Paul writes in verse 16 that it is breathed out by God. That's what the word is. All scripture is God breathed, breathed out by by God. That, That phrase breathed out is probably a phrase in the original language that Paul came up with on his own to help describe the divine authorship of the scriptures it's a word in the greek and it really just to help you get a kind of an understanding of what paul is doing here it's a word theonoustos which you hear the word theo god noustos is a word that means breath or spirit Uh, for those of you that have studied perhaps in seminary or bible school you've come across the study of the spirit under the umbrella of a word called pneumatology pneuma spirit breath ology the study of if that word is foreign to you, I'm sure you've heard the word pneumonia, right? That now we kind of get it. What is pneumonia? Pneumonia is an infection of the lungs, the breath, where breath comes from. And so what Paul is saying here is that the Spirit has breathed the Word of God out. All Scripture is breathed out, is what Paul says. Paul wants us to understand it is all God-breathed, meaning God is the author of it in its entirety. That word all is really important. All of it is God-breathed. This leads to Jesus, and you can read this on the screen behind me, saying this in Matthew 5.18, stating there in the Sermon on the Mount, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Why is that? Because God breathed it all out. And if God said it, it's going to take place. So not a dot on the eye, not a curve on the letter will not be fulfilled. Peter backs this up. Peter backs it up when writing, and again, you can read this on the screen behind me in 2 Peter chapter 1, that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is why I can hold this up to you and I can point to any verse on any page and say, say God says it here. God, God says it to us. 
God is speaking to us, but at the same time, I can, at, I can quote individuals like Paul, like Peter, like Matthew in the New Testament, for example, or I can quote people like Moses or, or David in the Old Testament, for example. God said it. Matthew said it. God said it. David said it. Speaking of David, let me give you an example of what I mean from the book of Hebrews. Again, you can look at the screen behind me. But in Hebrews chapter 3, the author writes in Hebrews 3, verses 7 and 8, the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We'll just keep that on the screen for just a second. So what the author of Hebrews is doing here in in verse 7 of chapter 3 is he is quoting from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And what he writes is the Holy Spirit says it. But then one chapter to the right, when you get to chapter 4, verse 7, the same author writes, Today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Same quote from Psalm 95, but what's the difference? The difference this time is the author of Hebrews states, David said it. But same quote in chapter 3 of Hebrews, he says the Holy Spirit says it. So which is it? Is it the Holy Spirit or is it David? Well, the answer is that the Spirit said it through David. Or if you like, David said it as he was moved along by the Spirit. That's why I've said many, many times over the years, whether it's been with our church planters or pastors or what have you, that if you want to be a ministry that is Spirit-led, you will be a ministry that teaches the book the Spirit gave us. You can't be a spirit-led ministry without teaching the Bible. That God-breathed gift to us, every jot, every tittle, for all you King James people, every dot on every I, every curve on every letter is for us. But there's more here in Hebrews 3 and 4. For not only are the scriptures God-breathed in their production, they are God-breathed in their proclamation too. I say that because I want you to notice the tense of the verb in chapter 3. Perhaps you picked it up when I read it. I'll just remind you of it. The writer states there, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, not said. As the Holy Spirit says, present, not past tense. The Holy Spirit says this by way of Psalm 95. And, And I just want you to understand Verb tenses in the Bible are really important. They're really important. The reason why I say that is because Jesus defended the resurrection by way of a tense of a verb. Some of you may know the interaction between Jesus and some Sadducees in Matthew 22. I won't go into great detail of it, but essentially they come to him with a question. The interesting thing is the Sadducees, just so you know and have some history, they didn't believe in the physical resurrection of the dead. And the reason why they didn't believe in the physical resurrection of the dead is because they only held to the first five books of the Old Testament, what we would call the Pentateuch, and they saw no resurrection of the dead in those first five books. In this interaction with the Sadducees, Jesus takes them to this this conversation between Moses and God when Moses is being called by God by way of that fiery bush. And Jesus, in Matthew 22, quotes from Exodus 3 and says, when God spoke to Moses, he introduced himself as the God. I am the God of your 
fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Jesus adds on that. He is not the God of the dead, but the living. Why does he say that? Because God didn't introduce himself to Moses as, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and David, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am, I am the God. I'm the God of the living. They had already died. And Jesus refers to that with a tense of a verb and says to these Sadducees, you don't know your Bible. We need to understand every curve, every verb, every word, every dot is God-breathed. And so when we go back to our text, few verb tenses are more important than this one. For when we preach and teach the Bible, we can take it as the Spirit saying things to us for the first time. The Spirit says this to us in 2018 in April at Christ City Kids. He's speaking to you right now by way of his word. That's why the writer of Hebrews goes on to say the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's why Peter writes that the word is an an imperishable seed that is living and and abiding. That's why. Now, at, at this point... I I can feel some pushback, perhaps. Some of you have internally. One of the pushbacks, especially when you teach out of a text like this, comes from people that go, I'm not a preacher. So this charge to Timothy by way of Paul to preach, this has nothing to do with me. I will never do, I will never do that. I will never stand behind a pulpit. I'm not a preacher. I, I get that most people aren't. They won't be people who stand behind pulpits. But we're all proclaimers. All of us, whether you proclaim to one over a cup of coffee or in a community group or whatever you call your, your small groups here, community groups, great, great name, community groups, whatever you call them, right? Bible studies, kid classes, your kids, if you have parents or parents, if you have kids, we're all proclaimers, all of us. So when you hear preach the word, just know you have the same call. All of us have the call, whether you preach to thousands or you preach to one, whether you proclaim or herald to thousands or just somebody you know across across the street we're all proclaimers so that's one pushback i just want to encourage you in that way but there's also a second pushback that is very common today in the church and that is preaching doesn't matter what matters is relationships man relationships matter community matters fellowship matters lunches matter all of that and i agree They do. The lunch that you were invited to, go to, right? That's a good time. Get to meet people. But let me push back a little bit on you and and tie it in with the pushback that people give at this time, you know, regarding the preaching of the word. Oftentimes is packed with statements like, you know, I grew up in the church and I don't remember one sermon my pastor gave. Not one. I don't remember one sermon my pastor gave, but boy, I thought he was a good guy. And that's all that matters. The relationship matters because there's not one message that I, I, I remember I remember from my growing up days. And I, I get that. I, I have a hard time remembering what I've preached, let alone what some others have preached. So I, I get that pushback. But let me, let me push back, as I was saying before, on, on that idea by simply asking you a question. Tell me what you ate three months ago. Three months ago today. Three months ago Sunday. Three months ago. Tell me what you, tell me what you ate. Or even last week, lunch on Wednesday morning. What would you... Our lunch at Wednesday, uh, you know, last, what you, what'd you eat at lunch? What, what'd you eat just, I mean, two days ago? You probably have to pause and go, mm, not quite sure. 
My point is, just because you can't remember the meal doesn't mean the meal doesn't sustain you or didn't in that moment and give you strength and give you courage, right? To carry on into the afternoon, right? To fill you up and to give you energy and those types of things. And therefore, just because you can't remember a message from three months ago or three years ago or your childhood doesn't mean that that meal in that moment didn't sustain you and strengthen you and help you and carry you on. So don't equate it like that. So I push back on your pushback if you think that the preaching of the word isn't important. It is important, as is fellowship, as is time together and so forth. So that's number one. Preach the word because of what the word is. But number two, number two, we are to preach the word because of what the word does. Take a look at verses 16 and 17. I know it's been read, but let me remind you of what it says, where we read in those two verses, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There's a lot here, so let's neat-nick it a little bit and just go through it one by one. Paul writes that the word of God, number one, teaches us. It's profitable for teaching. That word teaching means to train us up. In other words, like a good parent does with their child, so does the word. It trains us up. It also, we read there, reproves us, meaning that it it rebukes us, like a good parent does as well, especially when a child is living wayward and in sin. It reproves us. Paul uses it that way in his first letter to Timothy when speaking of elders, saying, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So it trains us up, tells us the way we should go, but it also rebukes us to change us from the way we're going. It does those two things, but there's more. It also corrects us. What's the difference between rebuking and correcting? Well, correcting is more tied into those individuals who are well-meaning. So they're not living in sin. They're not unabashedly living contrary to what they know is true. These are individuals who think they got it right, perhaps in a way of life or perhaps a way of seeing the scriptures, and they just need correction. They need someone to go alongside of them, come alongside and say, no, you, you're getting that a little bit wrong. Let me, let me help you with that. It also, we read in these two verses, trains us up in righteousness, meaning it shows us a godly way of living. You are all Vancouverites. You live in Vancouver. As you you live in Vancouver, you do many, many similar things that everybody else in Vancouver does, but we are to do them differently as followers of Christ. We are to do work differently. We, we are to do family differently. We are to date differently. We, we are to think of human sexuality differently. We are to think of money differently. We're to think of free time differently. We're to think of, of retirement and so on and so on differently. And that's what the scriptures do. They train us up in righteousness. But as you keep on looking at these two verses, what is the goal of all of this? Well, the goal of all of this is that we would be complete a word that speaks of adequacy to do a job. But Paul takes it a step further and says that we will not only be adequate, but equipped, meaning we will be fully furnished. That's what the word does. It equips us. It makes us 
adequate to do a job, fully furnished to do it. Therefore, if God calls you to something, he will furnish you fully to see it to the end. But his furnishing, we need to know, comes by way of his word as the spirit speaks to us through it. That's what the word does. All of those things. Trains us, corrects us, rebukes us, equips us, furnishes us, completes us. But do you see the end game in this as you look back at verse 17? The end game is doing the word. Not just knowing it. The end game is good work. It equips us and furnishes us for good work. How do you truly know that you know the word of God? You will do the word of God. James writes, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Jesus backs this up in a verse that you can see on the screen again when saying in Matthew 7, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. But to those who hear and don't carry them out, Jesus says they will be foolish. They will be like an individual who builds their life on, sh- life on shifting sand. That's why you have response time, by the way, in your gatherings. So that you can respond to the teaching of the word of God. And God always speaks to us through his word. He calls us from or he calls us to something. To live it out, to flesh it out, to do it. To demonstrate that you're truly hearing it. So Paul calls them at Timothy to preach the word because of what the word is, number one, and what the word does, number two. But what I find, and this leads to the charge, and I want you to go back and look at it if you have your Bibles open still, because what I find interesting about the charge of Paul to Timothy is how he lays it out. Timothy, by way, Paul to Timothy doesn't simply say to Paul, excuse me, to Timothy, I charge you to preach the word. He doesn't just say that. What he says is, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. What the heck? Why? Why does does Paul lay it out this way? What's Paul doing with Timothy? Well, what Paul is doing is helping Timothy feel the weight of his call. See, what Paul does is he not only evokes the name of God and Christ Jesus, but he reminds Timothy, Timothy, God sees and he's coming back. And he's going to reward and he's going to bring judgment. I'm reminding you of that, Timothy. That's that's what Paul is doing here. This is Paul saying, Timothy, what you do, you do under the gaze of God. He sees. And therefore, he needs to be the most important audience that you have in mind. That he's in the room. To use revelation language, Jesus walks amongst the lampstands. He's here. He he sees you. This is a solemn charge. That's the point of verse 1 and 2. It's meant to be taken that way. But here's the thing. It's not meant to scare Timothy. It's not meant to scare Timothy at all. It's not meant to scare you. It's not meant to scare me. It's meant to strengthen and encourage him and us. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. I've preached a long time now. Not as long as Fred, but I've been preaching a long time. He's a few years ahead of me. 
And just um, to be totally transparent, most of the times when I leave on a Sunday afternoon from, from church or some midweek event and drive home, most of the time I don't go home feeling great about the message or the teaching time. I just don't. I, I, I neat-nick things. I stumbled here. I missed that point. I said Paul instead of Timothy. Timothy instead of Paul, like I did a couple minutes ago. Those kinds of things. I go, oh, man, you know, I got scattered here. That illustration was terrible. Those kind of things. You just get, you, you just neat-nick it. You, you're your own worst critic. And so I go home a, a lot of times feeling like that. There are also times where I know because of what I preach, there will be people who totally disagree where I land. Believe it or not, there are some people in this city that don't, see things the way, same way I see things. And so I know that there are times where I'm going to get up and I'm going to teach and preach on a particular subject and there will be people that will be ticked, some will leave, some will email, and those types of things. I get that. And so I'll go home, sit on the couch, start watching golf, right, as I do most every Sunday, especially today, but most every Sunday, and I will just kind of rip myself apart. So what, what gets me through those times? What gets me from one week to the next? In spite of feeling like that, in spite of receiving that, in spite of knowing that people are going to leave, what gets me through those times? There's only one thing that gets me through those times. Knowing that I'm faithful to the text and God sees. That that's it. That I've done the best job I can by God's grace to be faithful to the text. And knowing that he sees that. That what I'm doing is not absent of his sight. That's what Paul is telling Timothy here. And therefore, it's not meant to scare us. It's meant to encourage us if we're being faithful to the text. Now, if because we're worried of people leaving or getting angry at us, or we just want to gather a lot of people, we're twisting the text or removing parts of the text or softening the edges of the text, then it should sober us up. But that's not Paul's point to Timothy here. He's, he's encouraging him. What Paul does next, and what we're going to end our time with, is that Paul moves now, after the charge, from talking about why he should preach the word to how he should preach it. If that's why you should preach the word of God, because of what it is and because of what it does, then how should you preach it? Let me give you six ways how very quickly, and then you can go and move into a time of response. Here's how, number one, we should preach it readily. Paul puts it this way, be prepared to teach in season and out of season. What does that mean? Well, it means that we are to be prepared to preach whether the opportunity seems ripe or not. To be ready to preach even when the audience seems unreceptive. To keep on preaching in your ministry, to your community group, or up here, or to your Sunday school, whatever it is. Keep on preaching even when it seems like the harvest time is done, man. Like there's nothing to pick. There's no fruit. Paul says keep on preaching even in those times. This is so important. This is so important in this city, especially because hard times can tempt us to try something else. So our preaching doesn't seem effective. People leave. People get angry. That church doesn't preach. They've got a lot of Let's do something else, man. And Paul says, no, keep on preaching. Because you don't know when a harvest is just around the corner. Be faithful. 
So preach readily. Number two, preach authoritatively. In other words, teach boldly. The the reason why I say that is because Timothy was called to reprove. We've seen that word already. Rebuke and exhort. That's never easy. Telling someone that they're wrong is, is never easy. Telling someone that the way they're living is not what God has for you is hard. To, to correct people is, is hard. To call people to repent is hard. To tell someone that their thinking is off is hard. But that's our task nonetheless. Reprove, rebuke, correct, exhort. The question is, what gives us the right? What gives me the right to stand up before you, speak into your life, and say, if you think this way, you're wrong, and if you think this way, you're right? What gives you the right to speak in my life and go, hey, Funk, you're wrong, or you're right, or you're messed up, or I totally disagree, or I challenge you on this? What gives, what gives you the right? What gives me the right? Well, the fact of the matter is I have no right to speak in your life, none whatsoever. There's nothing innate in my, my title doesn't, my invitation, nothing gives me the right to speak into your life. Same with you to me. Nothing gives you a right to speak into my life. So how can I do it? How can I stand up here and speak into your life that way? Well, the answer is I need to borrow authority. I don't have authority to speak in your life. I have to borrow authority. I have to get, grab some authority from somewhere else, use it, and then speak into your life. So do you. And that's what the word of God does. It gives us authority. Uh, let me illustrate it this way. I have two sons. I have an older son, Matthew's here. And Micah's up, up in Kelowna with my, my wife. Just imagine me in my kitchen one day with my younger son, Micah. And Matthew's upstairs in his, his room just hanging out. And it's dinner time. And so I say to my younger son, Micah, Micah, go up and call your brother to dinner. So Micah goes upstairs, says, hey, Matthew, it's time to come to dinner. Now, if Matthew at that point says, hey, I'm not coming to dinner. I'm not coming down at all. I'm doing my own thing. Don't want to come to dinner. If Micah is smart at that point, he will say, hey, Matthew, dad told me to tell you to come to dinner. What's Micah doing? He's borrowing my authority. He's not speaking on behalf of himself. He's speaking on behalf of the father. The father gave Micah a message to share with his brother. So to us. Our father has given us a message saying, speak, call people to dine with me. Same message with authority. We can't say I have no right. Yes, in ourselves we don't, but please understand you are a child of a father who's given you a charge. To speak. And go with the comfort knowing that you're just a conduit of grace. The, 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 the task of an ambassador has been given to you. A message to share. We need to be faithful to that call. That's where the authority comes from. So we need to speak with authority. Number three, we need to preach patiently. Paul calls Timothy to preach with complete patience and teaching. We have to have patience with our training up. Why? Because some people take longer to get it. And the fact is, we so often forget how long it took us. You know what I mean? So Paul speaks, speaks to this. Fourthly, we are to preach urgently. Why are we to preach urgently is 
told to us in verses 4 and 5. For, excuse me, verses 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That's why we are to preach urgently. That time here that Paul mentions has certainly come. We live in a day and an age, and we're certainly not the first, where people have accumulated teachers who will make them feel okay uh, in their thinking or in their living uh, and lifestyles that they have chosen. In this city, in this city, you can find a preacher, pastor, teacher that will affirm any lifestyle choice, anything. We, we live in, I love this city, born and raised in this town. I love it and it, and it grieves me at the same time. We, we have fleshed this out. We have accumulated teachers to affirm the choices we've made. And that's always a temptation to do so. And that's why Paul says to Timothy, preach the word, Timothy. For a time, to time is coming. The time has come, but the time tempts us. The time in which we live tempts us day by day. And so when we have the opportunity to preach sound doctrine, preach it before it's too late. To say nothing of the fact that we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't, we don't know, not to, not to bring just a downer on the day, but we don't, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know what, what, what lays around the corner. So we need to preach. We need to preach faithfully. Richard Baxter is a 15th century, was a 15th century English Puritan. And he states, preach as never sure to preach again. Like a dying man to dying men. So we're to preach urgently. Two more and then I'll hand things over. Fifth, we are to preach soberly. You can see in verse 5, Paul calls Timothy to be sober-minded. In other words, to be aware and vigilant. It has the idea of level-headedness. It means to be cool-headed in, in the face of difficulties. To not, to not freak out. To, to not lose it when hard times come, when resistance takes place. That's why Paul connects it in verse 5 to endure suffering. Because that's what suffering can lead to. An emotional overreaction to change things or just run to the hills. And what Paul says to Timothy is, Timothy, just stay there. Be sober-minded. Don't act like a drunk man, in other words, who just freaks out, runs for the hills. Stay there. Remain calm. Keep on preaching. Don't freak out. Remain level-headed. So we need to preach soberly. And then lastly, we need to preach evangelistically. Paul calls Timothy in verse 5, the last verse of our text, to do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. What is the work of an evangelist? Well, the work of an evangelist is to share the gospel at every opportunity. That's, that's the call to Timothy. It's our call too, to do the work of an evangelist. I, I think perhaps, and I hope I'm not reading into this too much, I think what Paul was saying to to Timothy is don't just don't just have your sharing times come to come in formal times of preaching. Make this your lifestyle. Seize every opportunity given to you in the day to day of your life. 
We have to remember, Christ City Kids, you have to remember, we have to remember it downtown as well, that heaven rejoices more over one coming to Jesus than the 99 we already have. There is more joy in heaven over the one that comes. We need to have that in mind. Now, as I wrap up, tied into this last this last instruction to preach evangelistically, do you know that not being gifted to a particular thing doesn't excuse us from doing it? Like, you may not be gifted to give, but you still need to give. You may not be gifted to lead, but you still need to lead, even if it's just one. You may not be gifted to teach, but you still need to teach and and you may not be gifted to evangelize but you're still called to evangelize we are to do the work of evangelism regardless of whether or not we have the gift of evangelism i mean besides what what are the gifts called they're called spiritual gifts if you are a christ one you have the spirit of god in you so therefore, at least in those moments of time, even if it's not your spiritual gift, quote unquote, you have the spirit in you that will empower you in that moment at least. So we all need to do the work of an evangelist. All of us. In fact, the future of this ministry depends on it. And that, that's, my, that's my passion to see take place in this part of the city. That you so full, fall in love with Jesus. That you become so dependent upon the Spirit's work and, and, and word that he's given you. And you believe that truly the gospel is the power of God. That you can't help share it in this part of the city. And that this place explodes and you plant more and you plant more and you plant more. That's my prayer for you. That's my, my absolute craving for you in this ministry and all ministries that love Jesus and aren't ashamed of the gospel. And so Christ City Kits, if I have one word for you, it's this, preach the word. Because of what it is and because of what it does. And when you preach it, preach it readily, authoritatively, patiently, urgently, soberly, and evangelistically. Let me pray for you. And so Jesus... I do. I pray. I pray for this ministry. I love this ministry. I thank you for Fred. I thank you for Brett. Thank you for the many others that are part of the team, both positionally on staff, but also the many 160. We, we, we have to limit. We have to limit our party to 160 because we have so many serving. Oh, praise God for that. Thank you for that. I thank you that they have to limit things here. That's, that's great. I, so I thank you for the good things that are going on. I thank you for the many people that serve. And I, I pray for your blessing on this ministry. Oh God, please bless it. Pour your grace out on it. I, I pray for those here that know you. I pray that their love for you would deepen and deepen and deepen. I pray for the lost that live in this area, areas where the people here live, for the lost, that relationships would be built that you would draw men and women to yourself. 
I, I pray for the things that go on here Sunday, but midweek as well, community groups and events, whatever takes place. I just pray that people would be invited and they would be, be people that would be drawn and people that would come to know Jesus. Oh God, we, this city desperately needs desperately needs that to take place so so pour out your favor and grace on this ministry lead them protect them from the enemy protect them from the enemy i pray for the leaders here that they would be supported that they would serve with great joy because those under them are undergirding them with support and encouragement god i pray for that so bless this ministry i pray in jesus your great name i pray amen thanks for listening For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.